hope you brought your Bible with you today, and uh, I would invite you to turn for the last time in a while, I suppose, to the book of Judges. We're going to finish our summer series uh, covering the last three chapters of the book, but I want you to put your finger there uh, in Judges 19, and then turn with me to 2 Timothy 3. Actually, 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, the last two verses of the third chapter of 2 Timothy. And uh, I think they're going to be of use to us covering a passage of Scripture that we have on our plate for this morning. I still hear pages turning, but if you happen to be part of Awana, you know this verse already. I'm reading from the ESV. 2 Timothy 3, 16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Paul tells us that this whole book, Old Testament and New, including the book of Judges, is profitable for us, and that having internalized its profitability, we're equipped, complete for what God has in store for us. Now, nowhere in those two scriptures did he say that parts of it would be as easy as other parts. We study one of the more difficult today. So let's ask the Lord's help in doing so, and then we'll begin reading some of it. Father in heaven, we ask for your help. You wrote this book. We consider you its author. We consider it inspired. We consider every piece of it true. Lord, we thank you for it and for preserving it for us through transmission and copies and translations. Lord, we ask for your help today first to understand it and then to obey it. And we ask this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Well, what we'll do is begin reading part of this in verse 19, or chapter 19. There are f- five chapters in the uh, appendix in the book of Judges. We covered the first two chapters last week, and we began that part of the appendix that has no judge in it, no salvation of God, no repentance from the people, or crying out, as we've seen it before. We'll see some of that today, but it's different And the reason why we're looking at three chapters all together at once, it's the most that we've looked at yet, is because it's all the same story. One event leads to the next event, which leads to the next event. And to chop it up into more pieces than all at once would probably uh, put us in the place of diminishing returns, being this is uh, holiday weekend and summer out. Uh, We'll finish it all today. And uh, if they're interested in knowing what happened, if they're not already watching by live stream, they can pick that up later. But let me begin reading. This is verse 1 of chapter 19, the book of Judges. It's, It's titled, if you've got a Bible, study Bible with titles, it probably has to do with something that sounds like a Levite and his concubine. In those days, when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him. 
she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there for some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys. And she brought him into her father's house. When the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay and remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. And on the fourth day, they rose early in the morning And he prepared to go, but the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Strengthen your heart with the morsel of bread, and after that you may go. So the two of them sat and ate and drank together, and the girl's father said to the man, Be pleased to spend the night and let your heart be merry. When the man arose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him, till he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day he arose early in the morning to depart The girl's father said, Strengthen your heart and wait until the day declines. So they ate, both of them. And when the man and his concubine, his servant, arose to depart his father-in-law, the girl's father said to him, Behold, now the day has waned toward evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to a close. Lodge here and let your heart be merry. And tomorrow you shall rise early in the morning for your journey and go home. Boy, this man has southern hospitality. Look at verse 10. But the man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jabus, that is, Jerusalem. He with him, a couple of saddled donkeys, and his concubine was with him. When they were near Jabus, the day was nearly over. The servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to the city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. His master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. And he said to his young man, Come, let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night at Gibeah or at Ramah. So they passed on and went their way, and the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them in to his house to spend the night." Verse 16, Behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field in the evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjamites. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. The old man said, Where are you going, and where do you come from? He said to them, We are passing from Bethlehem and Judah to remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim from which I come. I went to Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to the house of the Lord, but no one has taken me into his house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys with bread and wine for me and your female servant and the young man with your servants. There is no lack of anything. The old man said, Peace be with you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him into his house, gave donkeys feed, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. And we'll stop right there. The story changes drastically in the very next verse. And I read the whole thing just to give the author, the the narrator, the opportunity to build the story as he sees fit. Uh, This is narrative. It's a story. And we like to hear stories. And he's very careful to start out with what seems to be an overabundance of hospitality. And then leaving the house looking for 
another night's stay and hospitality from those he would think would be hospitable, being their brothers, his people. And it seems as if he's uh, very conspicuously trying to outrun the darkness that happens every evening as the sun sets. And that's more indicative of the true darkness that will be seen over this course of the night he spends in Gibeah. Probably one of the darkest nights of Israel's history, and it's going to spark an outrage that encompasses the entire nation, where people are going to say, we've never seen anything like this since we left Egypt. That's the way the author sets this story up. The remainder of the story, however, is almost a carbon copy of another chapter 19 in the Old Testament from Genesis. You may be familiar with what happened with Lot and where he decided to live and how some angels had met with Abraham and told him that they were going to see, investigate. They're speaking in people terms, though this is the Lord, and he knows what goes on in Sodom and Gomorrah. But what is taking place here is meant to bring our mind back to the 19th chapter of Genesis because they're almost exactly the same situation. The only difference here is that in Genesis, angels struck the men of Sodom with blindness and the threat was over. In this case, there's no intervention. In other words, what they came to do, they do, not to the men in the house, but to the women that are going to be put out in their place. Now, I'm going to assume that many of you in the room know what's coming in the next few verses. And I base that off of many comments that I got in anticipation of this sermon and questions regarding what are you going to do with that? So I'm going to leave that to you to read given this is a general audience. And uh, even though some of the things that we read or watch as children don't seem to mean what they do to us as an adult, this is a TVMA section of inspired scripture. So I'm going to refer to a few things, but I'm going to leave that to you in your reading. That and there's just too much to read to fit it all into one sermon. You'll have lots of homework if you're the type of student who wants extra credit. But the point the narrator wants us to clearly see in this situation, which precipitated the judgment of God in Sodom, and it's very specific what the, what the angels say when they're there to Lot, that an outcry has gone out from the victims of Sodom and has been heard in the ears of the Lord. That is what has precipitated judgment. Not one specific sin, but a whole host of sin. The sin was called grave sin, and the Lord had had enough. His, his mercy had expired. Judgment was what was forthcoming. And the author's trying to tell us that the same thing has happened, not in Canaan in the past, but right in the present, in Israel, among the tribes of Israel, specifically Benjamin. That's what the author's trying to tell us. That's the point. In other words, Israel has become Canaan. It's, it's finally happened. It's not that they're headed toward Canaanization or that they're dabbling with it or it's you know, infected them, but their, their immune system is fighting it off. No, 
they're now terminal, it seems. So the specific characters in the story, it shouldn't surprise us that we would expect to be good guys are actually bad guys. And the Levite is uh, the best example. Um, You'd expect the Levite to take care of his concubine and protect her. But he's actually no better than the Levite that we see in the story of the Good Samaritan. We expected him to help the man who's bad off, but he goes to the other side of the street taking care of himself. That's what's going on here. So let's make sure we've... Uh, at the beginning of the message here, firmly secure the purpose for this part of the scriptures. Okay? But this will be our compass. We'll navigate through all of this and know where we're at when we get there if we make sure we know uh, where we're going. And that was established last week. We don't want to lose the, the focus or the point of what the author's been careful to give us twice already, and he'll give us twice more. And everything that we're going to read is explained by that one statement. You remember it? There's no king in Israel. Everybody is doing what's right in their own eyes. That's what explains what we see here. And it will continue to explain what we see all over the planet when there's no king and when people do what's right in their eyes, not what's right in God's eyes. There's no king. Statement explains everything. So let me add to that. Put this in your notes. It's worth writing down. The problem isn't so much what each man was doing. That part of the sentence. Each man was doing. We want to focus on what each man was doing. What it was that they were doing. What's more important is what governed what they were doing. What governed what they were doing was what was right in their eyes. Not what was right in God's eyes. Lots of times, Christians, Pharisees, uh, Levites, priests, goody-two-shoes, all those have one thing in common. They like to look at other people's doings and say that those doings are worse than my doings. But it doesn't matter what you're doing if you're off God's standard of what's right in His eyes and on the standard of what's right in yours. As far as the score and sin and God's promise punishment against it, it's all the same. We need to be careful with that. The ultimate perversity of man is seen in his demanding what's right in his own eyes. And what's right in his own eyes is basically saying he demands the right to be his own Lord. He doesn't need another one. Put another way, the problem isn't necessarily sins, plural, but sin, the capital S, And that's in regards to man's fallenness. So sin, by its definition, is a declaration of independence. And that's what the people of Israel had done at this point. You ever thought of it that way? Declaration of independence? I know what God has written, but I just just don't need it. I'm I'm not a bad case like that. You know, uh, I don't need that type of... Restraint. I'm, I'm cool with the freedom that I have because I just don't need it. Uh, this is easy. We could, we could go back to Sunday school, sit down as children. Um, don't turn here, just listen. This is Genesis 3. So when the woman saw that the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, it's interesting. It's described that way as something she sees with her eyes. 
And the tree was be desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit, ate. She also gave to her husband who was with her. He ate. Then the eyes, there it is again, of them both were opened. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So this declaration of independence, which we see right as early as Genesis 3. You remember the Sunday, um, there was a few comments about it. We described this as the way I'd heard it before by... uh, R.C. Sproul, actually. Sin is an act of cosmic treason. Because among all the things that God has made, stars, planets, birds, fish, animals, they all do what they were created to do. There's only one part of his creation. Happens to be the one created in his own image and given the opportunity to choose, they chose to go against him. They've committed treason. So it makes perfect sense that later in the record, God would curse the man, the woman, the ground, and the snake, and promise death as a result of sin because he's a holy God. We sang about that this morning. He's three times holy. He can't have anything to do with sin. So when we get to Judges, the lowest point in Israel's history, it's written specifically to illustrate her sinfulness, its independence, its canonization. It describes that sinfulness over and over and over again by simply declaring they did what's right in their own eyes. That would be the epitome of the perversion of sin. That they've completely, totally abandoned what God had done. Now we creeped into that. If you remember from chapter 2 and verse 11, the first time we saw this, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So it's described not as what's right in their eyes, but what's evil in God's eyes. Right? And then we saw that at least seven times at, at practically every turn in the narrative. Each time we saw a new judge and a new threat and a new group of people and a new crying out to God, it was always the same thing. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. It wouldn't change until chapter 14. And who's in chapter 13, 14, 15? Samson, remember? And he's the one who said, get her for me. She's right in my own eyes. So then the language began to change from what's evil in God's eyes to what's right in the eyes of the people. And then by the time we get to chapter 17, which is the beginning of the appendix in verse 6 after the intro, this was last week, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone, not just Samson, but everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And we're going to see it again one more time at the end. Judges 21, 25, in those days, no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Those verses are verbatim the same. So perhaps we need a story like this. Because I think good, self-respecting, churched Christians could probably walk right through a big net known as, hey, watch out, don't do what's right in your own eyes. Oh, I got a Bible. I don't do what's right in my own eyes. We probably need something shocking and jarring, despicable, horrible, awful, to let us know that that net catches not just the despicable and awful, but every man and woman ever born since Adam and Eve. All of it fits in the same thing. The filter catches it all. From the small stuff to the big stuff. What's right in your own eyes is what's wrong in God's eyes. Now sometimes 
Long enough, we begin to take on the characteristics of our Lord and Savior. He changes our life, and our behavior becomes to match His. But we never, until we see His face, will lose our propensity to go right back to doing things in our own eyes. So maybe we need a story like this. And I'm going to just pull one piece out of this story, and I'd rather not do it. But in fact, I'd rather not deliver this message. This is just one of those that uh, is tough. But we need the whole counsel of God, not just parts of it. So we, we teach it all. But there's one part, I think, that illustrates this better than any of the rest of it that explains that that's exactly what's going on in this passage. Look at verse 23 of chapter 19. It says, and the man, and the man is the old man who took these travelers in. He's the master of the house. Went out to them. Who are them? Well, if you know the story, these are the men of Gibeah who've surrounded the house and demanded that the strangers be brought out for them to abuse physically. He said to them, no. And listen to the moral language here. My brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. I think this illustrates the sickness of what's right in one's own eyes better than any place in the passage. That's why we bring this out. And do your homework later. These two verses are almost a carbon copy of three verses in Genesis 19. It's the same speech, the same trade. So what is acceptable to this old man as an alternative to what he describes with his own words as wickedly vile and outrageous which is handing over the two women in the house to be abused instead. What is that exactly? And what rule book is that okay? His rule book. To him, that's preferable. It's not good. It's a hard decision. You know, this isn't a good day for anyone in that house. Night, that is. But in his book, it's right. It's the right thing to do would be to hand the women out the door and they can abuse them and we'll stay inside. It says that the Levite got up in the morning as if at some point in the night he actually fell asleep. To us this just blows our heads. But this is on the basis of what's right in their own eyes. They're not as different, that is, the men inside the house as opposed to the men outside of the house as they first seem if we apply that as the test. What's going on here? On, on both sides, they're doing what's right in their own eyes. There, there's a conflict of interest there, of course. And it shouldn't surprise us that what one man may think is right in his eyes is uh, another man is violently opposed to what is right in his eyes. Usually we see that in quite often. But they're both part of the same evil, symptomatic of the same basic moral sickness. And it's called depravity. And it happened in the garden. And it won't be fixed until the cross. And we won't lay it all off and leave it until we're glorified. But that's what we see here in all of its gory details. And this is why I think sometimes we need something so drastic to remind us that this is far more prevalent 
than we want to admit. That doing right in one's eyes rules our culture much more than we ever expected for it to. I mean, we've got millennia of history, and then the world decides to turn on a dime, and then anybody that doesn't turn on that dime with them, they say, you're on the wrong side of history. This is the right thing to do. To them, it is the right thing to do. They didn't fight for that because they thought it was wrong. They fought for that because they think it's right. Problem is, it's not right in the sight of God. But that's how prevalent it is. And one thing we should probably consider is not being so surprised when the world who does not have a king does what's right in their own eyes. It's going to change the way we try to engage them with the gospel. To treat them as if they know that they're doing wrong when it's clear that they don't might bring up some grave difficulties in in translating the grace of the gospel. The sin issue will have to be dealt with just as Jesus did with the woman at the well. But we'll have to do it very carefully because they're right in their own eyes. Let's pick it up in chapter 20 and uh, we'll pick up the pace as well. This is what they do about it all. Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba. Dan's in the north, Beersheba's in the south, like saying everybody from uh, Maine to Florida on the east coast, including the land of Gilead and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord. That's unprecedented. No judge has been able to do this yet, but this, this Levite has. And the chiefs of all the people of all the tribes presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. Well, they didn't come. And the people of Israel said, tell us, how did this evil happen? And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine to spend the night. Uh, just little nuances here. Uh, she is, actually, he is her husband, right? But she's not his wife. She's a concubine. Just in case any of your children at lunch say, What's a concubine, Mom? It's a substandard wife. Not really a wife, more than something illegitimate. It's not something we do anymore. Christ has elevated us to a place where we see what he intended men and women to be. And we're going to see that the picture for women in this, when Israel is at its lowest, the women pay for it. The worst. So he has his concubine. The leaders of Gibeah rose against me, surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me. They violated my concubine. She is dead So I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel. For they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all you, give your advice and counsel here. Now you can go back and look, but the account the Levite gave is a little different than the account the narrator gave us just a few verses ago. He's kind of tailored this to make himself look right and to uh, instigate what he hopes will be war, it seems. It's selectively tailored. He also acts as if what he's done with his concubine's body as being perfectly fitting given the outrage to use his words in Israel. 
We have a term for this kind of thing that he's doing and what's happening. It's called going viral. This had exploded. Everybody knows about it now. And this man is riding the wave of all this. Be that as it may, it was the final ultimate violation of this woman's personhood. She wasn't even given a decent burial. She's, she's his property, but now she's become a scandal. Something to show the rest of the nation how awful a night in Gibeah was. And it sets the stage for the abduction of young women in Shiloh in the final chapter. We'll get to that in a few minutes. So in the book of Judges, one thing we notice, everyone doing what is right in their own eyes produces a society in which both sexes lose their humanity, but it's women who suffer most. And we haven't even got started with that yet. That is at least abundantly clear. They're all assembled as one man. So what are they going to do? Verse 8. All the people arose as one man saying, none of us will go to his tent and none of us will return to his house. So they're not going to stop until something is handled. But now this is what we will do. We will go up against Gibeah by lot and we will take ten men of a hundred. Skip down just a bit. When they come that they may repay Gibeah of Benjamin for all the outrage that they have committed against Israel. So all the men gathered against the city united as one man. So based on the manipulative testimony of a Levite, they've all decided what to do. It looks as if they don't have their facts clear as the ones we have by listening to the narrators telling the story. And it could be that their cause they're all united around is based on flawed reasoning But they go ahead with it anyway. Verse 12. The tribes of Israel sent men through all the tribes of Benjamin saying, What evil is this that has taken place among you? Now therefore give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. This sounds exactly what they were told to do. But to Canaanites, right? That hasn't been done for some time. But the Benjamites would not listen to their voice, their brothers, the people of Israel. Then the people of Benjamin came together out of the cities of Gibeah to go to battle against the people of Israel. So this is civil war. They put together 26,000 men who drew the sword. And of that 26,000, we read that 700 chosen men were left-handed. We've heard that before. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. So the men of Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 men who drew the sword. All these were men of war. So negotiations fail, and you've got a war that's uh, somewhat lopsided. When you say 400,000 against 26,000, it's about 15 times lopsided on one side. This shouldn't take long at all, should it? Look what happens in verse 18. The people of Israel arose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God, Do what? They went up to Bethel and inquired of God. Haven't done that in a while either, have they? Seems as if there's something has them on edge for some reason. Who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? Now, if you change Benjamin and put the enemy's name there, we're reading from Judges chapter 1. And the rest of the, the sentence is the same. The Lord said, Judah shall go up first. So God is speaking. So what happens the next day on the first day of battle? 22,000 people die, not of Benjamin, but of Israel. 
So let me get this straight. God says Judah goes up first. 400,000 men attack. 26,000 men. And there are 22,000 casualties on the big side. And none are listed on the small side. That's what the story tells us. Verse 23. The people of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until evening. And they inquired of the Lord a second time, shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers? They're they're changing that. Brothers this time, the people of Benjamin. And the Lord said, go up against them. So they tried again the next day. What happens? I'm summarizing. 18,000 on the second day are killed by Benjamin. 40,000 dead of the 400,000. That's 10%. This isn't going well. Look at verse 26. Then all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel and wept. They sat before the Lord. They fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. Sounds like he's got their attention now. The people of Israel inquired of the Lord. Listen to this. For the ark of the covenant of God was there in those days. They had priests, grandsons of, uh, of Aaron saying, shall we go once more to the battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? Is this a lost cause? The Lord said, go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. So at the point where Israel has no more stomach to fight unless they're made to, the Lord says, go. What does all this mean? Why the the, the 10% of their standing army killed? And God leading the charge. Well, it seems as if the author is using his favorite literary device. It's called irony. What is ironic? And what you've got here are the covenant people of God, people that have never looked more Canaanite ever. In fact, for all intents and purposes, they are the enemy. Having failed to recognize the mobilization God put together through no less than 12 divinely chosen judges who were broken all to pieces, but they could have put this together and they could have driven out the people of Cana, but they hadn't. What we do have is a nameless Levite with questionable character and questionable methods able to rally virally the whole nation as one man against whom? The enemy? themselves that's the ironic part of all this and it seems as if God is using all of it for his purpose with all the passion they should have demonstrated in their war against Canaan they now use against their kinsmen so the irony is a big fat question does Israel yet realize she is her own worst enemy There's something worse than Canaan. It's the dark heart beating within each of their chests. That's desperately wicked that they can't know. That's what's going on. So the rest of the chapter is detailed. And it's the bulk of what we won't read. It's long. Again, read it when you get home. What happens, Israel chases down every last Benjamite. And they're very thorough. Number of places. And it gives the death count body bags each stop they make what's left toward the end is 600 men that are held up at the rock of Ramon and that's all every woman and child including animals have been slaughtered they're all that exist of the tribe of Benjamin 
So when we get to chapter 21, the final chapter. Now the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, no one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. And the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God. They lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. And they said, O Lord, God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? Except for those 600 men who don't have any wives, by the way. Benjamin's all but gone. And they're bothered by this. They wanted them all dead. They did a pretty good job of exterminating every last one, but now they feel bad about it. So they go to God and say, why has this happened? As if he's the one responsible for it. And at this point, he's overtly missing, silent. He doesn't answer this request. And what we read next shows the moral bankruptcy of Israel in their resorting to case-based reasoning. There's a word for that, but it's hard for me to pronounce, and I'll probably do it wrong, and one of you will tell me. So I just used case-based reasoning. And the other way that this is described sometimes is situational ethics. They've got themselves an ethical bind here, so they're going to really do some creative gymnastics in figuring out what to do to make sure this tribe doesn't go extinct. Problem they've got are 600 men left and no women for them. So, to preserve the tribe's future, and I'm summarizing here, they decide to track down any towns that had not joined them in the fight previously and kill all but their unmarried girls and present them as a peace offering to get Benjamin to come home from the Rock of Ramon. Jabesh Gilead is the one they determined who didn't come. They go slaughter everyone, and 400 young girls who hadn't been married are what they bring home with them. Verse 13, Then the whole congregation sent word to the people of Benjamin who were at the Rock of Ramon and proclaimed peace to them, and Benjamin returned at that time. They gave them the women who they had saved alive of the women of Jabesh Gilead, and they were not enough for them. 600 men. We got two-thirds of them squared away, but we've got another 200 that need wives. Verse 16, the elders of the congregation said, what shall we do for the wives for those who are left since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? They did such a good job, they're really in trouble here. Verse 19, so they said, behold, there is a yearly feast. The word behold there is kind of like a, oh, like you get an idea. There's a yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh which is north of Bethel, on the east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem and south of Labona. Very detailed here. And they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. Verse 22, And when their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us, We will say to them, grant them graciously to us, because we did not take for each man of them his wife in battle, neither did you give them to them, else you would now be guilty. So it's all good. If these guys do their job, everybody will be happy. This is probably the part of the story that would be easiest to look at comically, maybe. Um, I don't know. Make a musical about it. 600 brides for 600 Benjaminites. Or maybe just the last 200. The first 400 are 
That's actually all-out war. What we need to make sure we understand is that the way this story ends is basically 600 times the same injustice that the story began with. Where one woman, a concubine, is forcefully violated. Now 600 young women have been forcibly violated. Married off to men that they did not choose. Now marriages were arranged. I wouldn't use arrangement for what we've read about here. They lost their families. They were taken away from their families. Dragged out of homes. Stolen away from a dance. Forced to live with cursed Benjaminites. And within a few verses... The book ends, verse 25, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's the only way to explain any of this. And nothing about the preceding events was right in God's eyes. He's working with his people. Like a father works with his son through discipline, it seems. Nothing's normal here. All of this is warped and twisted. Normative biblical manhood looks to male headship not as a position of power like we see it here in Judges, but one of responsibility like we see in the book of Ruth, which also happened during the period of the Judges. Boaz selflessly cares for who? A Moabite, a foreigner who was married to somebody else, who other nearer kinsmen did not want. And he metaphorically covers her with his blanket. You're mine. The way that he goes to tell her where she can glean and how she can have the water that the men have carried. We've gone through this on Wednesday nights. Very reminiscent of a man at a well with a woman nobody wanted who had living water for her. You know, this is an awful part of the scriptures, but we're going to see some things change. There's Samuel. And then there's Saul. That kind of looks like Judges. And then there's David. And then David's line gives us the lion of the tribe of Judah later. Even Paul the apostle comes from the tribe of Benjamin. We're glad they were saved here, right? But next week we pick up in John's gospel. And one of the patterns that we've already looked at, we've seen right here in this period of history. And we're going to use this and we're going to use it more because this is how the two fit. There are insiders that don't get it. And there are outsiders who do. Jesus goes to the Pharisees. He cleanses the temple. He talks to Nicodemus. He's very patient with the disciples. But they have a very hard time getting what he's here for. And that is for your sin. But the woman at the well, she puts up an initial front, but then she embraces it. And in the period of the judges, it's Ruth, it's the Moabitess, who comes to receive salvation and generosity. To see things through God's eyes rather than to see things through one's own. What we're going to see is a pattern of rejection from the inside crowd. Rejection of, of, of kings, rejection of prophets. They've already rejected the judges. And they're going to reject their Savior, which happens to be the actual Son of God. 
And we're going to learn as we go through the Gospels that if anybody looks like the insiders in the time we're living right now, it would be us, the one who have the truth and tend to get puffed up by it and prideful and all about this business of really honing in on what the other guy is doing as over against what we're doing and if we can find somebody worse than us then what we're doing is all right and basically that's the same old song and dance it's what's right in our own eyes so the text functions as a warning to our pride which grows most obese when it gazes on the more blatant sins of others Judges shows us depravity probably better than any other book in the Bible. And God has promised to punish it with death all the way back in Genesis. So what do we do? I thought I'd read to you from Titus 3 that we've already studied. Because this is, this is a bad note to end on. Let me tell you what that says. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. That's the book of Judges. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us from Judges. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The gospel is clearer against the backdrop of judges. And as I've heard people say, my daddy say so many times before, before you get a person saved, you got to get them lost. Most people don't fit in judges. They don't think until they realize that their own eyes are just as capable of seeing and doing wrong as the eyes of those they read about that seem so horrible. The point of judges is that beast is in you. And that's why Jesus is here and why he had to die and why you can spend eternity with him. We think of all types of hymns that talk about this. But after we go through a book like Judges, they kind of take on a different meaning. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all those guilty stains. Or what about in Christ alone? My hope is found. Is it? I hope it is. So what have we learned this summer in the book of Judges? We need a Savior. And we're going to get back in John next week. We're going to read all about him. And why he's here and what he's come to do. John wrote it. Why? Come on. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, 
and believing you might have life through his name. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask for your help. I'm sure in a room like this, there's all different types and ways that a message like this may be received. But for some, I would suppose it feels much like a funeral. And hopefully it's death of our own pride and independence. And maybe it's resurrection of grace. Lord, speak to us through your word. Lord, may you be true and everyone else a liar. Tell us the truth, even when it hurts. And by your grace and for your glory, save us from ourselves. We ask this in your precious name. Amen.